What does it mean to be great in this world? What does it mean to be great? I asked that question on Facebook this week. I found out, by the way, in, in asking some questions, Facebook is, is, is semi-useful. Uh, aside from your political rants and your cat videos and things like that, it actually has some use. I was able to throw some things out. This was one of the questions. What does it mean to be great in this world? Now, it was interesting. People thought it was a trick question. Uh, there were some people who offered an answer immediately and just said, Here, here's what it means to be great. And others said, according to who? Like, just to answer the question. Just answer, come on. But I, I did phrase it the way I did so that you would wonder, now, in whose eyes are we talking? What does it really mean to be great in this world? It can have different meanings, can't it? There are some people who come from one particular mindset and they answer it according to that. Others who come from a different mindset, they answer accordingly. And there were some, of course, who, who said, well, here's what I really know that greatness means, but here's what this world thinks it means. So they kind of took both. Here were some of the responses. And, and you can tell that, that there is kind of a theme to this, but there are some different answers to this. Here's some of the responses I got. Persevere. Accept responsibility. Don't make excuses. Care about something or someone more than you care about yourself. Show compassion for yourself and others. Be humble. Try to have it all together. Be the perfect wife, mom, businesswoman. Do things that you're afraid of and push through them. Fight to prove yourself. Be a friend. Be kind and true to yourself. Never be afraid to fail. Practice the golden rule. Accept your failures and learn from them. Be noticeable. Be real. Have money and good looks. Uh, that that's, seems to work out for most people, right? <laughs> Works in Hollywood. Offer more value than the ones you're competing against. Put yourself last. Be great within yourself. Outwit, outplay, outlast those who would bring you down. Isn't it interesting to see when we talk about what does it mean to be great in this world, we, we, we kind of say, well, you know, I, I know really what it means, but here's what the world says it means. You ever get caught up in that? And then I threw out, I said, okay, who are some of the great leaders in your lifetime? The folks that you would identify and say, you know, I, I've seen this person. I may not know them, but I've seen them. And in, in, in my lifetime, here are the folks that I would say are great leaders. Now, Many people identified uh, nationally known leaders. There were a few that said Ronald Reagan or Jimmy Carter, former presidents and so on. Some mentioned family members. Uh, two people mentioned the Honorable Eddie Clyde Hale, as a matter of fact. And so no pressure. Uh, but I figure that's got to be good. It's an election year. People thinking good things about you, uh, running unopposed. I mean, that's, you know, if, if you lose this year, anyway, so... <clears throat> So it, it's spelled B-U-R-N-S in the right-hand campaign. Burns. <laughs> Be pretty good. Uh, anyway, but some, you know, people mentioned various people, various folks, and, and some they knew well, some they didn't. My, my fifth-grade teacher, interestingly enough, I was interacting with her a little bit, and she kind of summed it up. She said, I, I'm, "I'm coming up with no one." She said, I, "And now I wonder if what I expect from people is too much." And interesting. It, it, it seemed to be that we could describe greatness more than we could identify great leaders. It, it, we know what it is, but it's hard to really pin down. And truthfully, if, if folks are operating according to God's definition of greatness, we've probably never heard of them. I don't mean that anybody you've heard of is not. I just mean most folks probably never heard of them. 
And then I said, now, if we seem to have an idea or sort of an understanding of what greatness is, and, and, and a lot of folks mentioned things like putting yourself second and being humble and so on, then why don't more people live like that? There's something about us, I think, that we recognize that greatness as the world defines it is one thing, but true greatness is something different. Why then, if we sort of have an idea of what it really is, why don't more people live like that? And, and, and to kind of sum it up, this is what folks said. So many times we just go with the flow because it's easier. Reduces criticism. Doesn't require any risk. Being a servant is hard. Means dying to yourself. One guy said it doesn't sell or get ratings. <laughs> doesn't do anything for you. Someone else said we, we give up when we live differently and then we aren't immediately rewarded for it. Isn't that interesting? And so just doing what everybody else does, trying to be great like that is easier and it's often more preferable if we're honest. And it guarantees, however, that you'll never be great in God's eyes. So that's our choice today, I think. That we can continue down one path, which eventually will lead to destruction. That is the path of following so-called great leaders, pursuing our own definition of greatness. Or we can walk the path of Jesus, the path of the cross, following him as he teaches and as he demonstrates greatness that really can't be measured in any way. And that's a choice I think we're making every single day. Um, now, this isn't about people who are out there somewhere who don't get it. The story that we'll see today in the Bible, the Bible story we'll look at, is Jesus talking with his own disciples. Not just about people out there, but about them. Now, let me tell you this morning where I'm coming from, all right? Just kind of, well, here, here's, my, here's my, my, I guess, my platform this morning. Here is, here's what I, I believe about this topic that we're, that we're discussing. I, I believe that I and we probably don't really know or truly believe what true greatness is all about. I'm just going to shoot you straight. I'm not sure we fully understand it. I, I, I think if we did, and I, I include myself in this, I think if we did, we would live very differently every single day of the week. I think we'd live very differently. I'm coming from the standpoint also that I think we are so flawed and so broken that we cannot see, we cannot understand, we cannot live out true greatness apart from the Holy Spirit of God radically changing our hearts and our lives. We're so flawed and broken. We try, but we fail. Uh, I'm coming from the standpoint that greatness isn't learned, by the way, from just hearing a sermon. I'm not going to be able to cover everything. I got a text from somebody this week and said, now, these questions here, you've got me intrigued a little bit. When will the sermon be posted online? I'd like to listen. And I thought, well, I'm not, there's no way. I got 75 responses on Facebook. I just read all those. There's your sermon. I don't know. But I, I, there's no way I'll be able to cover everything. So just listening to a sermon, and as flawed as it is, it, it's, it's not... That's not it. But I really think greatness is learned through daily discipleship, through daily walking with Jesus, through daily discussing these things with other believers. And I, I believe that we, we have, and I, and I wrote this in response to somebody on Facebook, I, I believe that we have long accepted that the standard Americanized, Westernized definition of greatness, we've long believed that that's accurate. 
without any introspection on our part, without any biblical evaluation of it, without stopping to consider if that's just the definition that that is simply preferable and and the one that that expedites our desires. And so I say that not because I'm mad at anybody. I've just been dealing with this all week long, and I think, God, I'm not even sure I know what greatness really is. God, I need you to show me. And so when I look to the greatest who ever lived, what I see in Jesus is him living, teaching, and expecting a far different expression of greatness expressed most clearly at the cross at Calvary. And so we're going to look to Jesus today. I'm not going to try to give you my opinions. I'm not going to try to give you the opinions of people that I'm friends with on Facebook. I'm simply going to try to say, here's what Jesus says. And the expectation then for us, for you and for me, is for us to say, all right, if that's what he says, then I've got to adjust my belief, my behavior, my attitudes, all my decisions be adjusted according to what Jesus says. And that is what we'll look at today. So anyway, so turn with me. If you've got a Bible, I want you to look in the, in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter, uh, chapter 10. Now, I'm going to reference for you real quickly Mark chapter 9, just to kind of give us a little bit of context to catch it up. If you're, if you're new with us this morning and you haven't been a part of our Bible story series, all this year what we're doing is just looking at a different Bible story every week. We started in the book of Genesis, and we're going all the way through Revelation, one Bible story every single week that shows us that the Bible is not a set of disconnected episodes, but stories, but episodes all in one grand story of what God is doing to redeem the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And so what we're looking at is, is Bible stories, maybe that you thought you understood, things you thought you knew. How, how, what did God really say? How do they connect to Jesus? And that's what we're looking at. So in Mark chapter 10, if you want to hold your place there around verse 35, that's where we'll start reading in just a moment. But let me catch you up. Jesus in chapter 9 had been interacting with his disciples. He'd been talking to them. He's telling them that he's going to die. He's preparing them. Mark is the gospel of the cross. He moves very quickly. There's only 16 chapters. And by chapter 11, he's turned to Jerusalem and he's there for the triumphal entry and passion week. And he is going on with it. And so Mark wastes very little time. So early on in his gospel, Jesus begins to tell the disciples, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be handed over. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. And then I will be raised again. And it goes in one ear for the disciples and right out the other. Because as they follow along and Jesus telling them, guys, let me just kind of give you a heads up here. Here's what's going to happen shortly. You know what they're discussing? You know what they're debating as they walk along? As they sort of say, okay, Jesus, that's great. They're they're trying to figure out which one of us is the best. Who's the best disciple? I I am. I I just, you know, guys, I mean, it's a humble brag here, but I, I am the best disciple. And then somebody else says, well, not you. It's probably me. They're discussing who's the greatest among them. They're wanting to know who's got the most talent, the most skill, who follows Jesus most closely, who can preach the best, who can do all these different things, who takes up the offering without missing a row. You know, have you ever done that? You guys that take up the offering, now you're going to be paranoid next time you do it. But who, who can be perfect at those things? Who's the best church member? That's what they're talking about. And so they look at all their gold stars for Sunday school attendance. Some of you have been going to Sunday school for 75 years and you never missed a week. It's a lot of gold stars. Some of us still want to debate who's the best. That's what they're talking about. Kind of like a bunch of dudes that get together and they want to talk about who's the best fisherman, who is the best athlete. They want up each other over and over and that's what all the disciples are doing. Jesus is talking about dying. They're talking about who's the greatest. The story goes on into the next chapter in chapter 10 and Jesus interacts with a guy that we know is the rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and he says, I have been so good. 
I have done so many wonderful things. He says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, here's what you need to do. And he says, I've done all the right things. I'm, I'm really good. You don't understand. And Jesus looks at him and you know what he says? Go and what? Sell all your possessions, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the guy's like, sweet, that sounds awesome. I'm going to do that. Do you know what he says? We don't know. It says he went away sad because he had a lot of stuff. He was very, very great in the world's eyes. And when Jesus called him to true greatness, to truly following, he couldn't do it. And so Jesus is giving these examples and make no mistake that Mark is leading up to what true greatness is all about. And then we pick it up in verse 35. We're going to get from 35 to 45 two totally separate views of what greatness is all about. We're going to get one foundation that the world builds on and we're going to get the foundation that Jesus builds on and wants us to build on. And they are diametrically opposed to one another more so than we realize. There are two foundations for greatness. The first you'll see there on your bulletin if you want to follow along and fill in the notes and so on. There are two foundations. The first is built on success. There's a foundation of success. It has some building blocks, the first of which we're going to see in James and John beginning in verse 35. And the first building block is self-assertion. Self-assertion. Look in verse 35. Then James and John, okay, he's been talking about his death. Here, I'm going to die, guys. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want to die with you. We will go with you no matter what happens. We are ready and prepared to die. We finally get it. (coughs) My translation says, Teacher, we want you to do something for us if we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? They answered, allow us to sit at your right hand and your left in your glory. They want some positions. They want some success. We've been following you around. We've decided we're the greatest. And so the greatest have earned this. We are entitled to the success that you will bring us. They knew Jesus was sent from God and they see an opportunity. They see a way that they can be great and have success. And they go about it in a very human way. In fact, they go about it kind of in a, in a westernized kind of way, in sort of the way that we might say, well, yeah, you've got to assert yourself. You better go after what you want. I mean, if you see something, I mean, that's the essence of leadership is having vision and seeing something and saying, here's what we could do and let's go take hold of it. We like those kind of stories. If you don't help yourself, who will? And so James and John assert themselves and say in cold terms what they want Jesus to do for them. We want to be in the most positions or the most prominent positions, the most successful looking positions. When you establish your kingdom, we want one on the right and one on the left because we are, we're capable and we can do it and we've earned it. Now we rationalize this kind of stuff in our own lives. But I think maybe today we'll learn to be honest about our motives and let James and John be a mirror for us. We can call them out or we can look in the mirror and say, you know, I see that in my own life as well. Now, not all self-assertion is bad. That's not my point. Not my point at all. If nobody ever asserted themselves, nothing would ever get done. Okay, so hear me out on this. But how much of it is something that does come from a selfish motive? 
this isn't about telling us never to do anything or never to step up. But, but as Jesus will point out, these guys didn't know what they were asking. They were coming at it from all the wrong reasons. Jesus had a way of, of seeing through what they were asking. It wasn't just that they were ignorant. It wasn't just that they didn't get it. They were coming from a selfish perspective. Now, bear in mind, this isn't happening outside the Jesus circle, but within it. These are his disciples he's talking to. These are his disciples that want something that is worldly success. And when we think about the greatness that we want, I think the question then comes back, how much of it is based on what we can gain from it? Nothing wrong with aspiring to greatness so long as it is greatness in God's eyes and used for the glory of his kingdom. How much of it, though, is our desire to be attached to something seen as great? Anyway, self-assertion, first building block. Second one is this, this idea, this pursuit of success is built on competition. As you can imagine, the other ten disciples are, are hearing and seeing what's going on. James and John are not really making a secret of this. They're all traveling down the road, and, and they go to Jesus and say, here's what we want you to do. We want the positions of success and prominence. And the other ten disciples, if you look there in verse 41, it says, when the other ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Who in the world are you? Who are you? James and John, whatever. Nobody knows you except your names start with the same letter. That's it, James and John. It goes well together. That's it. James and John, I guess. They're indignant. Now, we might think at first they're indignant because, guys, you don't understand. Why are you, you know, come on. You're just being, you're just being selfish, and that's not what Jesus has called us to. You know, this, this is not indignance, you know, the indignance of a, of a parent who, who, who is saying to a child, look, that's not right. You, you, you shouldn't do this. You know why they're indignant? Because somebody jumped up in line ahead of them and they missed the opportunity. Somebody beat them to the punch. There's competition among the disciples. Why? Because back in Mark chapter 9, what are they talking about? Who's the greatest? James and John step up and they say, well, nobody's going to do it. We'll do it. Jesus, we're great. We want to be greater. Make us greater. They're indignant. They're competing for position and influence. And this is what our society says is necessary if you're going to be great. We wear ourselves out sometimes in this pursuit. Now, I'm not saying that all competition is bad. I happen to like competition, particularly of the athletic variety. I like competing. I like having somebody who can push me to get better. And the truth be told, if there's nobody who is as good or better than you in something that you're trying to do, then you won't ever get better at that. We know that. But that's not the kind of competition we're talking about. This is competition to be seen as great. It's a subtle competition. Competition like this can easily make those that we're competing with in life, make them nameless, faceless, even humanless. And it makes opponents out of people who we are to be reaching for the sake of the gospel. Let me, let me just, let me, let me pause for just a second. If, if we are not careful as believers in Jesus Christ, on whichever side of the aisle you might fall, then we can easily make targets and marks and opponents out of people that Jesus has called us to reach for the sake of the gospel. And his kingdom is more important than who's in the White House, who's in Congress, who sits anywhere in power in our country and in our world. And we have got to be very careful. Does that stuff matter? Sure, it matters. 
we got to be real careful because we are we are citizens of a greater kingdom now i love america and i'm so thankful to have been born here and been raised here and i would not want to have grown up anywhere else but hear what i'm saying We have got to be very careful that we are not jockeying for position to be seen as great. And in the process, we we step on, we eliminate, we ignore our mandate to make disciples of all peoples and all nations for the sake of Jesus Christ. The third building block in this foundation of success is power. You've got self-assertion, competition, power. Verse 42, Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles dominate them or lord it over them, some of your older versions might say. And men of high positions, they exercise power over them. Power is what they want. Jesus talks about how the leaders of the Roman government handle things and it's through power. You want something done, you go make it happen, whatever the cost. Now we all love power. Uh, young people like power in their in their vehicles. I was uh, dropping Lucy off at school the other day, and somebody, one of the kids, comes through in a Mustang, flying. I just looked at her. I said, "Why do, why do they drive faster in the parking lot? You can't go anywhere." You know, I mean, I, my first car was a 1974 Super Beetle. <laughs> I'm not sure what the super was for. I think it had something to do with the seatbelt style. There was, it was super. It had no power at all. And then, and then I then I had another car. It was a 19, what was it, a 1984, I think, Chevrolet Spectrum. And then I had a 1990 Chevrolet Beretta. And then I had a 1995 Ford Ranger. My first four vehicles, they discontinued all of them. <laughs> None of them had any power. Man, I tell you what, we love power, whether it's in our vehicles or fellas, your power tools, whatever it may be, or we just like power. We like being somewhere where we can make things happen. And Jesus says, you know what, those folks in the Roman government with the power, you know what they do? They dominate everybody. They love their power. And this is what the disciples wanted. They wanted power. Power to do what they felt like should be done. Power to get back at their enemies. Power to ensure they were never uncomfortable again. Power to show themselves great in everyone's eyes. And it's to this idea, this foundation for greatness, this idea of success that Jesus says in verse 43, look at it, but it must not be like that among you. I told you, I'm not here to give you my opinions today. The only thing I can stand on is God's word. And he says, it can't be like that with us. No, 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 no. You hear him saying, stop. It can't be like that. It's not to be like that. You are to be different. What he lives, what he teaches, what he expects is something far different, completely countercultural. Something honestly that, that maybe is foreign to us. He's the greatest, I believe, who ever lived. And so when he begins to talk about greatness, it's probably time for me to pay attention. Greatness in his eyes is built on a far different foundation. It's not success, but it's service. He says it's not about being successful and appearing to be successful in everybody's eyes, although Jesus has no particular problem with us doing good things and and enjoying good things. But at the same time, He says the foundation for greatness is not in that, but it's in service. 
And so instead of self-assertion, Jesus is going to want us to build on humility. Verse 38, he says to the guys who are asking for positions, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Now what that means is, you willing to go through the suffering? Can you handle it? In the Bible, the cup is, is a symbol of God's wrath. Baptism is a symbol of being plunged into something very difficult. Guys, you, you, you good with that? Oh, yeah, they say. Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, no problem. In one ear and out the other. No idea what he's talking about. Yeah, we can do that. And Jesus eventually will tell them, yeah, you'll go through it. But, but for, for those positions you're asking for, that's based on, on God the Father. He's going to hand those to who he wants. So self-assertion is not what God's looking for. He's looking for humility. You don't know what you're asking. You're going about it the wrong way. Humility. Not thinking less of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less. Taking a hard look at where ambition is directed. Is it for the kingdom of God or just for me and what I want to gain? And then secondly, instead of competition, service is built on sacrifice. Verse 44, Jesus tells them, verse 43 actually, on the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave to all. A servant is an assistant, a minister. A slave is someone controlled by someone else in another's possession. It's so foreign, isn't it, to our vocabulary, much less to our way of thinking. We, we all know about how it to try to be prominent. But Jesus says to go about that in a far different way. Competition for us is easier and more natural. Sacrifice, taking the back seat, eh, I don't know about that. To even most Christians, I, I think, this sort of teaching by Jesus, it, it sounds nice. I mean, it's like, yeah, okay, I know that. I need to be a servant. I need to make sacrifices. Yeah, that's right. And you'll listen, you'll nod along. You ever been there? Yeah, 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 that's right, that's right. But it's not practical, is it? This is not practical in any way. It, it, is, it is not useful in your life. I'll just shoot you straight. This is not useful. It's not practical, it's not useful, not in 21st century America. It's not. It's humility, sacrifice. You know what that does? Get you run over and overlooked. It's not useful. But that's the choice that we're going to make every single day. Are we going to choose to pursue God's greatness or the greatness offered by the world? What does it mean to sacrifice, to be this kind of servant? It means nothing is below me. It means that no one is below me. It means that everyone and everything that I do has dignity. It means to follow what Jesus did in Philippians chapter 2. It's recorded that he gave himself up, that he, that he humbled himself to the point of death means to do, what, do what's right, even if it doesn't benefit me. That's sacrifice. And the third building block, instead of power, there's death. Now, I almost put the word suffering. In fact, when I first wrote the outline, it had suffering on there. Because look, look what it says, verse 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And, and then it says, and to give his life a ransom for many. And I thought, you know, he just talked about drinking the cup and being baptized with the baptism and so on. And, and it's, it's suffering, but no, it's really not. Because his suffering led to what? Death. It led to the cross. It led to death. And so if, if we are going to operate by God's definition of greatness, it's death to us. 
It's death. Clint mentioned it on Facebook, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. When Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's what Jesus has to say to us, I really believe. Jesus not only suffered, but, but he died. It was his purpose to die. So that's ultimately what he wants the disciples to do is not simply to go through some hardship, but to die to themselves. Immediately after this, beginning in chapter 11, he's going to, speaking of needing to die, this wasp over here, this guy keeps coming back every Sunday. Notice you all following him. Here he comes. I'm not quite done yet. I'm getting close. And so are you. Somebody held the door open, didn't you? All right, let's do our best then to ignore it until it's with you. There you go. Nice nice try. He's good. Jesus bids us to come and die. His death, which we see beginning to happen there in chapter 11, was what brought us freedom and success. And his death was the most successful thing that he ever did. Jesus could have established an earthly kingdom. In fact, we saw that last week where they wanted to make him king. But he said, no, no, I've got a far greater purpose. True success is found in giving up our lives, giving up our rights, giving up our desires for the sake of others. There's a quote that I came across from a commentary that I was reading this week. Listen to this. We'll close here in just a second. When the greatest greatness came into our world, he was born in a stable and laid in a feeding trough. He walked from town to town without a home, without a place to stay. He made some headlines with his messages and miracles, but he made many more enemies. When the Son of God came, calling lowly fishermen to be his disciples, he kneeled and washed their filthy, undeserving feet. The King of Kings, the greatest of all time, humbled himself to the point of death, even the most shameful, painful kind of death. True greatness lost his life in love for us. This week, how can I serve that person? How can I invest in that person for the kingdom of God? How does God want me to give of myself right now? How do I need to die to myself that Jesus might live through me? What entitlements and selfish desires do I need to reject? What of the life, ministry, and death of Jesus do I need to learn and imitate in this situation? How is it that God wants to use me to serve? Jesus served to the point of death that we might be set free of our sins, that those who believe in him would forever be forgiven and changed. And Jesus said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. I think in summary of all this, here's what the greatest of all time has to say about greatness. That the path to greatness is the way of the cross. Every day, every moment of every day, it's the way of the cross. I deny myself, I take up my cross, and I follow him. In other words, I live crucified. I live crucified every single minute of every single day. You want to know what true greatness is? You want to leave here today and tomorrow, be greater at who you are? Live crucified. Walk the way of the cross. Lord, how is it that I need to die to myself? That you might live through me. That you might be great through me. There is only one who is great. And he is not in this room physically. His name is Jesus. Live 
crucified, he calls us. Live crucified. Let's pray together. Lord, there's so many things that we could say this morning about greatness. So many things that might swirl through our head, even so many arguments we might have against what we've heard. Lord, I pray that your word would simply go out and accomplish its purpose today. That we might live with humility and sacrifice. That we might live out the death and the resurrection of Christ. Lord, you might live through us in such a way that we would no longer be pursuing greatness for our own ends, but we would pursue your greatness for your ends. And so, Lord, whatever it is, whatever situation you've placed us in in life, Lord, be it one that we want, one that we don't, one of prominence, or Lord, one of anonymity, one of riches or one of poverty, Lord, I pray that even in all of those that we would pursue greatness according to you. Lord, help us. We thank you, Lord, for the greatness displayed in the cross of Christ. Lord, you didn't love your life so much as to not give it up for our sake. And we thank you for that. Thank you, Lord, that through our faith, by your grace, that we can receive salvation, forgiveness of sin, and be made new. Lord, help us this week to live crucified, to walk the way of the cross, to be great in your eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.